And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. When you hear the discussion about who the next national leaders of the Democratic Party might be, one of the names that always winds up on the list is Kamala Harris, the newly elected senator from California, a former attorney general from that state, a district attorney in San Francisco uh, for years. She's a dynamic new leader on the Washington scene. I dropped by the Capitol the other day to have a conversation with her, her about her life, career, her future, and the new era in Washington under President Trump. Senator Kamala Harris, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you, David. Good to be with you. Let's start with the name, Kamala. Yes. Because it's a good way into this whole discussion about your interesting life. Yes. Oh, good. Okay. So um, it's my name, and um, it is actually um, an Indian name, which is a relatively common Indian name. And um, people ask me how to pronounce it, and so I've... There are many ways. If you were asking my grandmother, she'd say Kamla. <laughs> um, I usually help people pronounce it by saying, well, just think of the hyphen, a comma, and then add a la at the end, and that's it, Kamala. And um, it means um, actually the lotus flower, which is a very, um, it, 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 a symbol that is present in most Asian cultures. And it represents, as I learned it, that, you know, the, this flower sits on, on top of the water, but its, its roots are grounded in the mud. And um, and th- that that's where you should be with your you know you should be able to do both and, and have your feet firmly plant- planted um, even if if things look you know lovely on top you still have to keep it grounded and um, seems like a good admonition for today I think so and, uh, yes so your uh, your mom was Indian yes. Uh, your dad African American uh-huh, Jamaican American Jamaican American uh-huh. so how did they meet. They met, my parents met when they were graduate students at the University of California, Berkeley in the 1960s, and they were both active in the civil rights movement. And um, my sister... My goodness, what a hotbed Yeah, it activism. really was. My sister and I, we joke, we grew up surrounded by a bunch of adults who spent full-time marching and shouting <laughs> yeah. um, about justice. And that's what led me to want to be a, a lawyer, because... Among the heroes of that great civil rights movement, um, there were the lawyers Thurgood Marshall and Charles Hamilton Houston and Constance Baker Motley. Um, these individuals who understood the skill of the profession of law to, to translate the passion from the streets to the courtrooms of our country and to do the work that we know must constantly be done of reminding folks of that promise we articulated in 1776. Well, I, I, I want to get to that and your career in the law, okay. uh, but... Uh, but I, I just want to hear a little bit more about your folks and about the sort of cross-cultural yeah. upbringing and uh, how that helped shape you. Well, you know, it's it's funny, David. Um, for and I'm gonna I'll bring it back to my childhood. But you know, in my career, when I was district attorney of San Francisco, um, attorney general of California, and even as now as the United States senator, in each position, um, I was the first. And um, and so, in particular, when I was DA and, and AG, 
reporters would come up to me and ask me this really original question, put a microphone in front of my face. What, so what's it like to be the first woman, fill in the blank, D-A-A-G? And I'd look at them not knowing how to answer that question. And, I'd, and I would tell them, I, I really don't know how to answer that question because, you see, I've always been a woman. <laughs> but I'm sure a man could do the job just as well. So what, what was it like to grow up the way I did, I grew. I had a great, happy childhood. Um, it all seemed normal. <laughs> um, I grew by Berkeley up, standards. Well, in Oakland, I, I was born in Oakland, mm-hmm. and it was. I grew up in a community of people, a, a, an immediate family and a, an extended family, who were um, really passionate about um, about service and about justice. And it, it was a very stimulating environment, as I realize. Um, it, and, and it really shaped and formed a lot of what I think about in terms of how I, I thought of and think of priorities. Um, I grew up in an environment where my mother um, was, she was supposed to, she came to, to, to Berkeley, California to get her um, PhD, and she ended up being a, a very significant breast cancer researcher and endocrinologist. Where did she grow up? She grew up in um, in the north, in Bombay and Delhi, but the family is from the south, in Madras, which is now known as Chennai. And, but she grew up, and, and she, she wanted to go to one of the best schools. And my grandfather, you know, this is the 1950s, late 1950s. My grandfather said, you want to go to one of the best schools, wherever you want to go, you go. I'm going to support that. So he let his daughter travel from India to the United States. At, she was, I think, 20 to pursue her passion, which is that she wanted to be a scientist. Um, but she was, and so that speaks a lot about also the family that I was raised in, where um, you know, my grandfather and my grandparents were very progressive in the way that they thought about the world and who could do what. What did they, they do? In my grandfather was one of the original freedom fighters um, when India uh-huh. gained independence. And um, the family stories included uh, him often joking about my grandmother, who didn't even have a form. She didn't really have a, a formal education. She didn't go to college. But she was one of the smartest people I've ever known. And the the Family stories included a story about how she would go in the villages with a bullhorn and, and, and tell the village women about how they, they have, should have access to birth control. And my grandfather would laugh about how your grandmother almost made me lose my job. <laughs> so, so my mother then comes and she, she goes to graduate school and she was supposed to go back to India and have a, a good arranged marriage. But, you know, she was active in the civil rights movement naturally because of the family that she came from and met my father and made the very courageous decision to have a love marriage. And, um, and that really, as I describe it and think of it, was you know, an incredible act of self-determination. Um, I grew up in an extended family where my second mother, um, Mrs. Regina Shelton, uh, uh, she immigrated from Louisiana to California, um, as did her husband, Mr. Shelton, from Arkansas. Um, in that wave of black folks from the South who went to California for the jobs that were being created, in particular through the naval shipyards and all of that. Mm-hmm. And she was the second mother to, to me and my sister. Um, Explain she ran a, that. What do you mean, second mother? She was, she, my, she kind of co-parented with my mother <laughs> when we were young. And my parents divorced when we were young. And she was, um, 
she ran a nursery school. We lived on top of the nursery school in an apartment above the nursery school. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to go down there, work at the nursery school and volunteer. Um, Mrs. Shelton was an extraordinary woman in terms of just how much she gave back to the community. She ran this nursery school. She would always take in foster youth, foster children. Um, I remember there was a situation where there was a, a young mother who clearly, as I realize now, had been experiencing domestic violence. And she took in the children for, you know, couple days and and made sure that that mother could get herself together and take care of her situation. Um, So I grew up in an incredible environment. You you mentioned your mom and your second mom. Yeah. What about your your dad? Did you have... Yeah, we would... So, you know, part of the the reality of those days when couples got divorced is the mother got custody. Yeah, sure. And um, without much question and debate. Um, We would see my father on the weekends. And, he was um, an economics professor. Economics professor at Stanford, and we would um, spend summers with him from time to time, and um, and he definitely was a part of our life. But my mother was the primary. Let me parent. ask you about him uh, because this was the '60s. Yeah. So that that's sort of noteworthy as well. You have a, an African American man who's. Uh, pursuing his doctorate in economics. Tell me about his family. How did he get to that? So my father was a national scholar in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. He, I keep um, saying African-American, but he, he was Jamaican-American. Jamaican American, yes. yes, and he, um, he was, and he is very, a very smart, very smart, and academically just, he, this was his his passion and he excelled and um and became a national scholar and so based on merit he then went on and pursued his passion which was um economics and um and was at Stanford eventually but met my mother at Berkeley so really you, two parents who were drawn here by the opportunity to study yeah at some of the best schools in the world yeah i, I just want to ask you in the context of today's Debate where we were, were debating who we should let into our country mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, do, do your parents, do, do their experiences help shape your, uh, your thinking about this? Yes, yes, of course. And, I, you know, I mean, listen, it is my personal experiences. It is also the ex- it is everything I learned in law school. It is everything I learned about the history of this country, um, from being a you know a, a, a student in college. <laughs> um, it is all of my experience as a prosecutor that lead me to my perspective on what is wrong about what's happening currently in terms of the treatment of immigrants and and what we need to do to correct ourselves. And so I say all that to say it is all of those influences that taught me that we are a nation of immigrants. All of those influences that have, have shown me that when we allow any community of people to live in the shadows, they will be the victims of predatory practices and crimes. All of those experiences which have taught me that we have a Constitution of the United States which bestows certain rights that are inalienable. Um, we, that we are a, a, a country of laws. Um, all those experiences which have taught me um, that we need to provide people with access to an attorney if their liberty is at stake, which is why the first bill that I've dropped right. in the United States Senate is a bill that, if passed, will give uh, immigrants and refugees the right 
to have access to an attorney and not to be avoid denied the frantic access. scene that we saw just a few weeks and ago. To, and to avoid uh, an injustice because of a lack of due process. But here's the here's the thing I was getting at. Uh, your your folks uh, made contributions that were really important, as do people at all walk in all walks of life. But um, I'm struck. I mean, I'm the son of an immigrant. I'm yeah. struck by um, just how much this country relies on people coming here and joining in mm-hmm. and contributing. Uh, and uh, you know, our education system obviously is one magnet yeah. uh, for it. Uh, it seems that's something to be celebrated. It's certainly something to be celebrated. It's also, you know, I grew up in... I grew up in an incredible community. It was a very nurturing environment. Um, I grew up in the black community where, you know, and again, in the 70s, when we were still fighting so much about what is unjust, the injustices. And I put the experience that immigrants are having currently in that category as well. Um, when, when, When any group of people are being denied access or there's a suggestion they should be denied access to fundamental um, services like public education, public health, or public safety. That's an injustice. So I look at it through many lens, which include the circumstances of my birth in every way. The circumstances of my birth being a child of the civil rights movement, the circumstances of my birth being the child of, of, of people who were not born in this country and, and, and elected to come here, wanted to come here. Um, I look at it, again, through the lens of my, my profession as a, as a prosecutor. Do you, um, you know, I, I obviously... Uh my old boss, uh, President Obama, yes. wrote uh, famously about his search for identity. And, yeah. and um, did you go through a process like that? Mm-hmm. Did you, I mean, you know. W- it's, yeah, it's a, I, I usually, when people, you know, journalists, for example, will ask me to talk about that. What I usually say, David, is I, I'm happy to have that conversation. But if you want to have a topic, if you want to have a conversation about race in this country, then if you have about four or five hours to put aside or four or five days, this then, is a let, podcast. then Knock let's go for out. it. And then let's go for it. Right. Because, you know, so for example, so for example, um, my mother understood quite well that she understood what it meant to raise her two daughters in the world in which we were born. She knew, like we all know, the history of this country in terms of the one-eighth rule, right? One-eighth of, of black blood, you are black, and you will be treated that way, both in terms of the benefits and in terms of the, 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 the drawbacks legally. My mother knew that she was raising two black daughters who would be two black women. Mm-hmm. That's a complicated thing for people to understand um, when, because, because unfortunately, some people infer that by saying that and, and knowing that, that that's not somehow a rejection of who I am as the daughter of an Indian woman. Yeah. And, and there is no rejection. No, I mean, I think it's they a coexist. recognition of the society in which absolutely. we live. And it, and absolutely. I mean, and it, and it raises so many points that we're now battling today in terms of even, you know, just what's going on with different communities in terms of stereotypes, in terms of profiling, um, in terms of desperate treatment based on how one appears what and who one appears to be. Look at this incident that just happened where Indians were, this, in this, this, yes, in Kansas, where this fellow decided that they, you know, basically he must have put a whole bunch of brown people in one category 
and decided they must be Iranians and and committed a horrible act. Yeah. So perception of who someone is can have a direct impact on the experience they have in life. You know what was moving about that story? I mean, it was it was horrifying beyond description. But there was one element of it that I, I think has been underreported, which is that when the shooter was first kicked out of the bar, mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of the patrons came up to these two uh, Indian men who were, at, who were there and, and apologized and yeah. wanted to buy them drinks. Yeah. And then they engaged in a d- discussion about, right. about these kinds of attitudes and how mm-hmm. negative it is. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then, of course, when they were shot, this courageous young guy gave yeah. chase. Uh, and I, I always feel like, uh, ever since I read that, I feel like I should note that. Because the, the, because mm-hmm. those folks represent uh, America. You know, That's those right. are uh, good Americans who reacted in That's the way right. you would hope. And uh, we, should, uh, we should not forget that. And I, and I agree with you completely. Um, in this era, this I've been referring to it as this post eleven eight world. <laughs> um, I've been reminding people and myself uh, of of that simple fact that you just presented through that story, which is we are a great country, imperfect though we may be. We are a great country. We were founded on on certain ideals, noble ideals. Right, including those words we wrote in 1776, we are all and should be treated as equals. And it is my life experience that the vast majority of people believe in that and will fight for that and will fight against unfairness and injustice. And, and I think that you're absolutely right. And, and who knows how those folks voted, by the way, right. in the presidential race. Right. Um, because what they did... The odds, are, the odds are, though, that they may have voted... For for Mr. Trump. That's my point. Yes. That's exactly my point. <laughs> That's exactly my point. Yes. Yeah. So let me just ask you one last question, and then I want to talk about your, your career in the law. Okay. Um, do you get sick of these questions? I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, do you, uh, I know these a- anthropological discussions and all of that, that that seem to be a fascination when people write about you and probably when people talk to you yeah. uh, in, in, in discussions like this. I mean, is there a little thought box above your head saying, oh, not this again? You know, I was raised to do. Um. That's just, I was raised that you, you do. You don't talk about yourself. You just do. You don't talk about it after you've done it. You just do the next thing. <laughs> and I'm, I realized when I first ran for office that people um, demand that you talk about yourself. <laughs> and it, it, it just naturally is something that is, um, you know, I would prefer to talk about what, what needs to get done versus talk about myself. So I, I, I asked because, you know, there was this profile in the Times, and one of the things they said was that you seemed, you know, reticent about talking about yourself. So Yeah, I just, I mean, let it ask me to talk about anything about what needs to get done, what, you know, the work... I'm happy to do that. I just, yeah. I don't, I think it's so, that the things that we need to talk about are so much bigger than, than me. I, that, you know, but I'm happy to talk about myself, <laughs> but, you know. I get it. But, you know, uh, the fact is, and this, on this podcast, I try to talk to people about their lives because yeah. I think your life informs who you yeah, are. I agree. But I will say this uh, we are, uh, 
we are awash in politicians who like to talk about themselves these days. So <laughs> I, I appreciate your, your, your reticence in that way. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Senator Kamala Harris. You chose to become a lawyer. Yes. Um, but what's interesting to me is you became a prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Uh, very un-Berkeley-like thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, tell me why you made that decision. So you're right to ask the question that way. Um, but I'll add something to it, which is this. I, you know, I was born in Oakland. I grew up in Berkeley in the Flatlands on the other side of the tracks. I, you know, I am of a family of people and community of people who were marching and shouting for justice and, um, and a community who also historically um, had relationships with law enforcement that were not good. It was law enforcement that enforced the Jim Crow laws. It was law enforcement that when my mother was marching, she shared stories about how um, that they were marching from Berkeley into Oakland and the police department lined up to say you could not go beyond them. So when I, um, when I got out of law school, um, I made a decision to become a prosecutor, and you're absolutely correct, David. My family and extended family sat around, and they said, oh, well, now that's a curious decision. (laughs) (laughs) And with some of them, I had to defend the decision like one would a thesis, right? I mean, most of the people I know who went to law school, you know, became, you know, went to public advocates or or ACLU, or or they they became public defenders. And my point then, which I maintain today, is law enforcement has such a profound and direct impact on the most vulnerable among us and has as its responsibility, as its job, to be a voice for the voiceless and the vulnerable. And I wanted to do that work. The other point was and is this. When you want to improve a system, um, certainly there is a role to be played about you know, marching and about banging down the door and sometimes on bended knee. There is also a role um, which is to be at the table where the decisions are made and influence the system from that perch. And so that's what I decided to do. The other point that I'll raise with you is this. when, As a prosecutor, I stood before a jury and said, listen, the penal code was not designed just to protect the proverbial Snow White when my victim was a prostitute who was drug addicted and also a victim of rape. I, as the district attorney of San Francisco, the elected top law enforcement officer of a major city in this country, was able to create and design an initiative focused on giving jobs and education and parenting support to to former offenders. As the attorney general of the state of California, the top cop of the biggest state, having the power and the position, I was able to create a whole statewide initiative focused on early education and getting, in particular, Poor children, um, access to what they need to be able to go to school every day. Um, and it was focused on the issue of elementary school truancy. So I, I recommend to every law student that I uh, mentor, you want to go, you want to be great, you want to you go, go into fighting for civil rights, social justice, criminal justice reform, become a prosecutor. Because you then have the power to make the decisions, which include, by the way, also acknowledging a certain myth, right, which is a myth, for example, that the African-American community does not want law enforcement. We do. We don't want excessive force. 
We don't want racial profiling, but we want law enforcement. All people want to know if a child is molested, if the, a woman is raped, if, if someone is killed, all people want to know. There will be serious and severe and swift accountability and consequence. So I reject the false choices. It does raise difficulties, though, in terms of, um, well, well, let me just throw this out here. I, I come from Chicago. I yep. don't know. You, the president keeps mentioning it in his mm-hmm. speeches. Uh, there are neighborhoods in our city where you have uh, unremitting violence, and yeah. uh, it's been dreadful. Um, we've also had cases of excessive force that were dreadful yeah. uh, and very well publicized mm-hmm. uh, and um, the result is there's a reticence on the part of the police and mm-hmm. there's a reticence on the part of the community and there's this massive gulf of trust. And in that gulf, you've got gangs flourishing and guns right. Uh, right. blazing. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do you, how do you balance these things mm-hmm. in such a way that you have yeah. effective law enforcement in those communities and respect for civil rights and right. cooperation between the community and police, which is necessary, as you know, to solve these crimes? Absolutely right. So there are a number of things. Um, first, I'll say I was, I was proud as Attorney General of California to do um, what we believe is a national model around. We developed a, a training um, protocol for police officers on implicit bias and procedural justice, the first of its kind. And because of the, the relationships and the influence that I had as Attorney General of the state, um, working with law enforcement and working with community folks and academics, we were able to institute it as, as now a part of the training that is offered for all police officers in the state. Very important because, you know, on this issue of implicit bias, part of what we have to recognize is that um, people make quick decisions based on familiar reference points. And so, you know, so the, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting thing how the brain works. You, when you have to make a decision about um, anything, you will go to that thing that is familiar. And so what are you making a decision about? That could be a decision about what is art, what is pleasurable music, what is beauty, and what is scary. So we want to train people who are going to make a decision that could have a consequence on someone else's life. We want to train them to reflect on the fact that they may not be considering everything that is happening at that moment. That's the training that I'm talking about. As Attorney General, we were able to do that with my office, and that is one thing that I think should be a national model to address part of the point that you're raising, which is the relationship of trust between the community and and law enforcement. So the training piece around implicit bias is important. The other piece that is important is to acknowledge that in any relationship of trust, be it a professional or personal relationship, it is absolutely critical that we speak truth, right? And because there must be honesty in a relationship if there's going to be trust. That means recognizing the truth around the history of the relationship that many communities have had with law enforcement. Not only the black community, LGBT community can talk about all of the enforcement of laws around sodomy that caused people to be criminalized. Um, There is what needs to happen around acknowledging what is going on in various communities. All of that is important around the training and the trust piece. Okay, I'm going to put that aside. The other point about what I think needs to happen to, to deal with this point is we have to reform the criminal justice system so that we are not being purely reactive. 
we need to have a, a honest conversation about what is the role of of law enforcement and if the in a law enforcement system is it only to enforce the law or is it also especially if you're talking about DAs and 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 prosecutors is it also to do everything we can to keep a community safe and if we agree that the goal is ultimately to keep the community safe, then we have to appreciate that we will be most effective if we adopt the public health model, which teaches us you want to deal with an epidemic, be it health or crime, smartest, most effective, and cheapest way to deal with it is prevention first. If you're dealing with an emergency room or the prison system, too late and too expensive. And that means also creating an environment where law enforcement is a part of the prevention piece and not just the reaction piece. California, uh, though, has been uh, not always a model of prevention, but a model of uh, detention and incarceration. Look at three strikes. Yeah, exactly. You know, a young man walked into my office uh, at the University of Chicago at the Institute of Politics uh, the other day named Michael Tubbs, who you know. Oh, yes. The 26-year-old mayor of Stockton, California. And he told me his story, which was that his father, uh, who was 17 years old, Mm -hmm. went to prison under three strikes, and he's still there. Uh, today. And, you know, his mother heroically uh, raised him firmly and with great Mm -hmm. guidance and Mm -hmm. must be very, very proud of him today. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, it just underscored um, the fact that you have pretty draconian laws there. Have they contributed to safety? So we... uh, We undid three strikes a couple years ago um, because... It just became very clear based on how it was being used and implemented. It was not achieving its intended goal. And um, you're right. California has not been a model of reform. Um, We were the first to to, to pass three strikes, and and the success in California allowed it to be um, replicated in other states. In fact, you'll appreciate the point that, you know, people say to me, oh, you're from the left coast. Oh, no such thing. California voters passed three strikes. California voters passed Proposition 13, 187 around immigration, but it was undone by the courts. Um, Prop 8. Right. So this is who California voters are. They, They tend to be and can be very conservative. What I think is important going forward is that we start to evaluate each of these states and our criminal justice system in a way that we apply metrics to our analysis of effectiveness. I think that's that's going to be where, if we do that, that's where we make the leap, okay, which is applying metrics to our analysis. Looking at, for example, like in California, where um, within three years of release, up to 70% of, of those who were incarcerated reoffend. Mm-hmm. That's just a bad return on the investment. I love my friends in the private sector. They are cold-blooded in their analysis of their effectiveness, unburdened by ideology. They just ask simply, what's the ROI? We need to do that in terms of the criminal justice system, and we'll see that we're failing taxpayers. The other piece that I would um, really strongly urge us all to do, all of us who want to see reform in these systems, is we have got to fight for the adoption of technology by government. And I'm going to tell you why. We have and maintaining government, incredible troves of information called data about all of these folks who are in these systems. And we collect this data and we put it in a room and we close the door and it gathers dust. But now technology exists for us to be able to analyze all that data, 
to see where we are in terms of the, 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 the patterns and, and, and really do an analysis of the return on the investment. You know, for example, I'll, and I'll say this about technology. You know, when I came out of law school, we had big data, right? And you know what it looked like? It was this really tall aluminum file cabinet <laughs> yeah. with thousands of files. That right. was big data. Now with technology, big data means a whole other thing. Right. We can write code, switch a button, and analyze all that. And I think that's going to be part of the, 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 the step towards making this much more persuasive, the point, which is that you don't have to agree with me ideologically about what's not fair. It's literally that the taxpayers are not getting a fair return on the investment. The other piece is we started a whole big data initiative when I was AG of California around criminal justice, um, around deaths in custody, police officers killed in the line of duty and arrest rates, because I had one of the largest sources of information about people who are incarcerated and arrested, because it's the largest state in terms of population. And let me tell you, David, what it showed, without any depth of analysis, and then I challenged all of the press and academics to also test their hypotheses. What we saw without any depth of analysis is this. California, um, California's black population, 6% of the population, but 20, over almost 25% of in-custody deaths. So... That put aside then a conversation that was happening where people were saying, oh, Black Lives Matter, they're just shouting and, and they're marching and, and what are they talking about? Well, perhaps they're talking about it with antidote and emotion, but they're talking about the same thing the data shows, which are there, there are disparities in the system based on race. What do you, the president's been talking about crime lately. He's been injecting that into his speeches as we sit here and chat today. He's about to speak to a joint session of Congress, and my guess is it may come up uh, again tonight. And uh, he has conveyed the sense that crime is out of control all over the country, using Chicago as a kind of poster child for that. But that's that's not true. It is not true, and it it's deeply troubling because this is exactly what got us into the mess, which is creating a climate of fear. And and and. St- attempting to sound tough um, in order to be for people to assume that he is in fact tough in dealing with the problems uh, it, he's, do you think it's do you think there's ra- uh, that is there's race in, uh, surrounding it I think it's 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 loaded with all kinds of things that are really all about politics and not about policy and not about fact and that you, that you're, and, you're, you're agile enough not to answer my question well, but I, I truly believe that it I mean, is. Isn't it racially sort of tinged a little bit when yes, you say? Yes, of course, of course, of mm-hmm. course, of course. There's that component of it. That's part of the history of this topic in our country, right? It's the Willie Horton that that still that still exists. Um, so yeah, of course there is that piece of it. It is also um, it, it you know when people are when you make people feel afraid and then. You know, then they will look. They, they're. I guess he's assuming that they'll look at him for some guidance about creating a solution. So it's it's a problem yeah, in search. You, it's, yeah. it's it's a solution in search of a problem, as as is said. Yeah. And it's um. It's irresponsible. Before at you best. before you got here, uh, and I know you were part of the movement to encourage this. Congress was working toward some sort of significant criminal justice yes. reform. And uh, now we have Jeff Sessions as attorney general. Are you less confident that 
that can get done. You have organizations like the Koch brothers, uh, uh, their their right. crew, and so on, That's working right. in favor of criminal justice reform. It's been kind of an interesting left-right coalition on this issue. Do you uh, do you think it's a doable thing now? So I, here's how I think about criminal justice policy. I think we have been offered a false choice as a country. The false choice is to suggest that you're either soft on crime or you're tough on crime instead of asking, are we smart on crime? And by that, I mean, again, looking at the public health model, which has taught us prevention is a smarter way to achieve safety than reaction. And my concern is I've just read that um, now Attorney General Sessions is talking about shutting down or or minimizing the work that the United States Department of Justice has done in in investigating cases of of excessive force and racial profiling. Um, it It is doing a disservice to all of us, and I'm deeply troubled by it. And what about the the bigger project of sentencing reform and so on? Do you do you see that moving forward? I'm told you would be I've right been, in the middle of that. I yes, assume. and I and I want to be. And I've talked with some of of my colleagues here, both Democrats and Republicans. I am hoping that we're going to be able to make some headway. I think that on the issue, for example, for example, of opioid abuse. Um, you know, part, we still have lingering effects of that war on drugs, which was a failure. Sentencing reform is, is will be a part of, of of repairing the harm that was created by that war on drugs. And that, of course, cuts a wide swath right through the base the, of President Trump's constituency. Absolutely right. And that and see and that again is the point of of what is wrong with this this approach that is about reaction and not looking at things like drug crime through the lens of, of, of a public health matter as much as a criminal justice matter. Um, it's just doing a disservice to families and communities, and we're, we're just paying so much more to, to put it in the criminal justice system and not treat it also in the public but you health still, system. But you think there's still a possibility to get something done? I think there is if we've, I think we can find common ground if we start a discussion around opioid abuse and what we need to do around treating it as a public health matter. And by that, I mean looking at what we can do to encourage um, public health responses to the substance abuse aspect of it um, instead of reacting by incarcerating a bunch of, of people who are, who are substance abusers and, and, and have mental health-related um, issues, some of them, and have issues that relate to their families and their children. Uh, I think we can be much smarter in the terms of the way that we handle the issue so that it becomes less of an issue than it is right now. And I think that Republicans, like Democrats, go back to their states and they meet with these families. They meet with the parents of these young people who are addicted. They meet with the children of the parents who are addicted. And they know it's a real issue for them. Places like Kansas, places like West Virginia, a variety of states. Mm-hmm. That, that are not burdened by whether the, the, the substance abuser is a Democrat or a Republican. It's just a problem. Yeah, we had uh, uh, J.D. Vance on, yes, uh, right. on, on this yeah. podcast at the university right. talking about his book, uh, Hill, Hillbilly Elegy, and, I, and mm-hmm. his, his mom got swept up in this yeah. uh, drug uh, epidemic, as did mm-hmm. many in his community, and he's mm-hmm. actually gone back there to work on it. So it's, uh, it's a pervasive it's a pervasive it's problem. It's a pervasive well, problem, and we just we but we have to put the we have to understand that that it's been marginalized as affecting certain communities and not others. And it is drug abuse is something that does not discriminate 
based on race, and frankly, not even based on class. Um, because I've met a, a plenty of, of families who also have a concern, um, the upper middle class families, about prescription drug abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, frankly, we, our country has an insatiable appetite for drugs, and we need to deal with that at its core. You know, interesting talking to him, though, um, and we had a little colloquy between him and a guy named Alex Kotlowitz, who, who wrote a book called There Are No Children Here years ago mm-hmm. about the projects of Chicago mm-hmm. and the sort of the dystopia there. And mm-hmm. what was interesting was how similar the experiences were, sure. and the common element was sort of lack of economic opportunity sure. and, 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 and hope. So this drug crisis, obviously, it's addictive. But it's also symptomatic of something larger. Yeah. Uh, So for years I worked on um, the issue of children who are growing growing up in a a community or a home where there is violence and and or children who are experiencing trauma. So post-traumatic stress disorder in children that goes undiagnosed and untreated. And, you know, be clear that poverty induces trauma. And again, it does not distinguish based on race. And so the need for addressing it early on in that child's life, detecting it, diagnosing it, and treating it, because unless we do, like any normal human being, um, anyone experiencing trauma does not like feeling pain. So they will find ways to not feel that pain. And that is where drugs and alcohol kick in. And so part of what I think we have to do a better job of in terms of a public policy push on the issue of drug addiction in, in, in these various communities is also do much more around intervention with children who are growing up in these homes and making sure that we are giving them all that they need so that they can, they can live through that experience in a way that allows them to be healthy. Yeah, I would submit that we also have to go to the core issue, which is if you have communities in which uh, economic opportunity is oh, no scarce. Question. No, no then, question. No, uh, I'm only talking about the, the Band-Aid. You're absolutely right. Yeah. There's no question. I, uh, I hate to turn from this subject to the humdrum business of uh, supporting our show, but we have to take a short break, okay. and, and, we'll, be, and <laughs> okay. we'll be right back. Let me talk a little bit about um, the political moment in which we're in and how Democrats sort this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, there's a point of view, some of it emanating right there from the Bay Area where you, where you uh, come from, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, the order of the day is to resist and resist everything. Yeah. In other words, whatever this president says, whatever he does, whoever he appoints should be resisted. Uh, and in part of that was is 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 provoked by a sense that that's the way uh, President Obama was treated. Part of it is based on outrage about some of the approaches of a mm-hmm. of a Donald Trump. Um, how do you how do you uh, react to that? What's what's your strategy? Uh, for dealing with this president in your new job as a senator? Well, you know, I, I, I start with the perspective that to the extent that there is any um, possibility of alignment, I would welcome that. But at the point that we differ in terms of basic principles and priorities, then we're going to have to fight. 
Do you see any any possibility? Do you see things that are bubbling up that you uh, uh, on which you might want to work with them with the administration? Infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, if there is an, a genuine desire to do that in a way that is about um, supporting, for example, California's needs, we have. Um, I just toured the uh, the the Oroville Dam um, where there yeah. was incredible flooding. Yeah. Um, because the infrastructure was just compromised, because it's frail, because it has gone, like in many places in the state, without um, adequate maintenance and, and upgrade. And this is, relates to water, it relates to transportation throughout the country. Uh, if, if there is a genuine desire by this administration to focus on infrastructure and upgrading infrastructure in this country around water and transportation, I would, will joyfully work with the administration on that, if, if it is a true commitment to actually putting the resources into the states to build back up the infrastructure, which, by the way, will also produce jobs. Um, on an issue like immigration? How would, you, how would that be received? I mean, I, I, I welcome that. I, I, mm-hmm. I kind of question the efficacy of saying, no, we're not going to repair that dam mm-hmm. because it would have politically negative implications. I, I think that that's a... That's a Bad That's counterproductive. That's counterproductive. But, but how would that be received in uh, if you were having a town hall in Berkeley? I think it would be well received. Yeah? I believe most people to be reasonable people. And if people understand that where we can do something that is about bringing jobs to the state, and improving the quality of life people have because we have you know roads that are repaired or we have dams that are that are um, reformed and replaced, then um, and and a water infrastructure around storage of water, then I think people will welcome that. Uh, but I've not seen any movement toward that yet. And so I will tell you the current relationship I have with this administration, which is um, in particular through the committees I sit on and the appointments that this president has made to his cabinet. And we have strong disagreements, and I've been fighting against those. For example, what is going on around this Muslim ban? Outrageous. Outrageous. And so the work there has been everything from critically um, questioning uh, General Kelly, who has since been confirmed, I voted against him, but confirmed as the head of Homeland Security, to calling him up that weekend when the, um, when the executive order was issued, because I was getting numerous calls from attorneys who were at Dulles and at LAX mm-hmm. and SFO trying to have access to these refugees and being denied. Mm-hmm. Um, when, I, when I learned that, that they, they were making decisions about these refugees who had been in a vetting process for two years and had cleared that vetting process, and, and they were still denying them right. um, legal entry at that point, um, we, we have to fight. Let me ask you uh, about another one, which is the Supreme Court appointment. Yes. As you know, just Judge Garland languished uh, without a hearing for right. uh, the better part of a year. Uh, and uh, so there are those who say Democrats should filibuster uh, Judge Gorsuch. Where do you – and, and let's just stipulate, because I, I don't want to waste uh, your time, mm-hmm. that I'm sure you're going to give him due consideration and all of that stuff. Yes. So we'll stipulate the disclaimers. Okay. But where do you uh, – Are we uh, also stipulating to a 60-person threshold? Yeah, well, okay. I mean, if uh, – that, Well, that's that is the important. issue. The issue yeah, is I, I, I presume that you may find reason – 
to oppose his nomination. I think that that's that that is a serious concern of mine. I haven't fully vetted his um, his background yet, but based on what I have read and know. Um, I have serious concerns about his role in, in, in terms of, for example, Hobby Lobby, um, serious concerns about his interpretation of, of whether a corporation is a person or not. And, um, but I, I do believe that we should maintain the 60% um, percent threshold. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't fill about, you wouldn't, uh, you, oh, you think you, you should. So you think that there should, you would uh, maintain, I, I, yeah. you would filibuster. We'll see if the circumstances require if you oppose his, If you oppose his nomination, you think that the 60 should be... Uh, I think that we should, not, we should not allow... I'm getting tangled up in my own words yeah. here. We should not allow the rules to change. Mm-hmm. This, these were the rules under President Obama. Democrats agreed to it, rightly, even though we were in the majority. And it should be maintained, which is for the for a confirmation of a, of, a, of an individual to sit on the highest court in this land. There should be a sixty vote threshold and nothing less. But the the ability to change the rules it may be out of your hands. You're right. With fifty two Republicans. You're right. You are correct. So um, doesn't mean we don't fight. Mm-hmm. All right. So you're you're basically urging that Democrats force. Uh, McConnell supporters and the, the, to to produce sixty votes exactly yes mm-hmm. you know and and David here's the thing you know again let's take this out of the the political realm and just talk about the significance of the United States Supreme Court and the impact the direct impact it has on real human beings had Earl Warren a, the previous a previous Attorney General of California not led the unanimous court to decide Brown v. Board of Education, I would not be here talking to you as the United States Senator. Had decisions not been made around Voting Rights Act and, and, and what needs to happen around issues like choice, people's lives would have been very different. And so the, the, and, and we know that members of the United States Supreme Court stay there for a very long time. And we have, to, we have to give deference to the responsibility, the enormous responsibility of those positions and have a process that is fair and that has the highest standard in terms of the threshold by which someone will ultimately be able to sit on that court. There's a, a movement that's been organized to challenge uh, Democrats who uh, are seen as complicit or compromising with, uh, uh, with the president uh, and Presumably, the Supreme Court will be well. You've got a bunch of colleagues who are from more conservative yeah. states. Uh, what would you say to those who say um, they should be punished if they stray? So here's what I have said: uh, 2018 is really important, and I've got plenty of friends who are. Really watching very closely what each person does in terms of the votes they take. But to my friends, I'm saying this. You may not agree with everything that some of the 2018 folks, Democrats, um, you may not agree with every one of their positions. We need the numbers. We need those numbers. And so um, I, it's just, just practically speaking, um, I hope that we don't walk away from 
uh, other Democrats who we may not agree with on everything, because ultimately we need to come as close as we can to that 60 percent. And the numbers matter. Yeah. And states differ. I mean, mm-hmm. California is not yeah. uh, But we're Missouri. talking about five Democrats who are going to be running in 2018 in states where Trump won by almost double digits. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, this is a question perhaps for everyone to ask and reconcile with, you know, themselves and their God, which is, is it more important to, you know, what's more important? Is it important to keep those five or to sacrifice them for the sake of, um, you know, But you know, this is what's else. happened with our politics. So there are people on both sides who say, you know, I'd, I'd rather not, I'd rather have uh, no one there than someone who, or no one from my party than someone who is complicit in supporting policies or appointments or a president who uh, who I find, uh, you know, unacceptable. I, I just don't think it's a zero-sum game, and that's my point. I don't think that we can – I don't think that um, when we're talking about this issue that we can um, afford to only think about – an all-or-nothing game when there are some Democrats who are up, and we don't want those those seats to shift to a Republican mm-hmm. in this in this environment. So, you, and you know, and I, I don't I don't necessarily I don't agree with my colleagues, Democratic colleagues, on on these certain issues. So, I completely understand the need for advocacy. I'm not suggesting anything other than that. We should everyone should be advocating. They should be speaking. They should be speaking out. They should be attending the rallies. They should be attending. The, the town halls, I, I strongly encourage that that happens. But at the end of the day, it's a question that, that we just, it's, it's a practical, real question that we're going to all have to answer, which is, what do we want? And for those Democrats who are running in those states, um, do we want that they will be there at the end of the day, or are we willing to let them go? And well, so I, I, I'm pointing that out as an issue that, that must be acknowledged. Well, you're like a big hot ticket in the Democratic Party. Now you're, the, you're one of I the big, big new <laughs> yeah. things, and you're going to be asked to uh, campaign all over this country. Are there any colleagues on the Democratic side who you wouldn't campaign for? No. Let's talk about the hot new ticket thing, because this is a party uh, that is— uh, was stunned, obviously, on eleven eight, as you yes. pu- as you put it, and uh, the question immediately became, well, what now, yeah. and who can lead us forward? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, I actually worked for a new senator who immediately started figuring in the national mm-hmm. speculation. And when Barack Obama came to the Senate, it wasn't his intention to run for president right. in two thousand eight, and we were very leery of it because mm-hmm. we didn't want the folks back home to think that that he was just having yeah. a cup of coffee on his way to somewhere else. I presume you feel the same way. Absolutely. Um, and, what he, and he ruled out running for office in 2008, uh, and then he ended up having to re- rescind mm-hmm. that. So um, in order to avoid discomfort later, I want to give you the chance to, <laughs> to answer that question What's and the question, give yourself the, que- the question is, uh, do, would you would you rule out running on on a national ticket, either on the top or as a vice presidential candidate in 2020? It's the, I, it, it, I'm absolutely not thinking about that at all. 
Well, I'm asking you to think about it. Okay, well, I'm, that's, that's kind of you, but right now we have so many battles right in front of us. I've seen so many people focus on that thing out there and they trip over the thing right in front of them. It's so not worth it because right now the thing in front of us is very real. I mean, like our bill in terms of access to counsel, um, what we're doing in terms of fighting for the Dreamers and the DACA kids, what we're doing in terms of potentially having to fight uh, as it relates to, you know, whether Jeff Sessions is going to be the one doing an investigation around issues that he probably should recuse himself on. The same thing with Scott Pruitt, who I voted against, who is now going to be the head of the EPA. And as Attorney General of Oklahoma, he sued the EPA, this agency he now runs, but has refused to say he'd recuse himself from those those cases. There is so much happening yeah. right now, and um, and it's frankly it's a it's a very troubling time. I'm, I'm not using the word scary because I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but there are a lot of very big issues that are on the table right now, and we have to we have to be alert and present, like right now. Yeah, no, I'm I hear you. There's a, there's an incredible mm-hmm. amount of of potential undoing of everything that Barack Obama and others, including George Bush. Put in place. You know, you mentioned Sessions, um, and there's something that I neglected to ask when we were talking about the police issue. Yeah. There were some uh, consent decrees or or memo uh, or agreements to negotiate consent decrees mm-hmm. in uh, Chicago, in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. It's now up to this Justice Department mm-hmm. to follow up on it. Um, there's some discussion that that's not going to happen because uh, Attorney General Sessions has said he wants to take a, a more it's a pro-police right. uh, stand. H- how uh, how will you react if uh, they decide not to move forward? Um, I'm de- very troubled by that, and and I'll also say this: as a career prosecutor, I worked my entire adult career with cops, and the vast majority of them take seriously their oath and they do a good job. And then there are the bad apples. And they may not talk about it publicly, but they want as much as you and I that we get rid of the bad apples. They know that it's not in their best interest. It's not in the best interest of their safety. It's not in the best interest of just the, 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 the sacrifices they make every day, knowing that they may not come home at night. So the idea that, that, that this top law enforcement officer for the country would say, we're not going to go after the bad apples, is ridiculous. And it's counterproductive. It's absolutely counterproductive. It's no secret that there are bad apples. And where they exist, there should be as much consequence and accountability for them as anybody else who commits a crime or or fails to follow the rules. And this is not about, again, it's a false choice that's being presented. You're either pro-police officer or you're pro-civil rights enforcement. That's a ridiculous false choice. You can and should be both. And, and do you, what do you think the motivation for it is? Do you think it's rooted in politics or do you think it's rooted in philosophy? I, I don't know, but I think it's, it's rooted in a, ignorance, frankly. You've never been in a uh, – and, and I just want to leave this here. This is your first uh, legislative body. You've been a prosecutor. Yes. You've run – uh, uh, an attorney general's office. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you? How are you reacting to? <laughs> how are you adjusting to being one of a hundred in yeah. a body that isn't run by your own right. party? I would think 
there's an adjustment period for someone who's used to having a staff, being able to make decisions, uh, being able to see the results of what you've done. Um, yeah, there's no question there's an adjustment. I mean, as as Attorney General and as DA, I worked very closely with the legislature and, and helped um, pass a number of laws. Um, little known fact, I was a, when I was at Howard University as a sophomore, I was a Senate intern for Alan Cranston, uh-huh. the then senior senator yes. from California, who Barbara Boxer succeeded, and now I'm, I'm here. Um, but you're right. There is, um, it, it is a different um, process. But having said that, I will also say that you're right, that this is a different time than we've seen before, and that there are some of some traditions of the Senate that just don't apply to this point in time, at least for Democrats. And that relates to, for example, speaking out and speaking loudly about um, a number of issues that we know are wrong and disagree with. I think I've always seen that in my offices there are three elements of power. There is the element of power that comes with the statutory and technical responsibility of the job. There is the power that comes with the bully pulpit. At any moment, I can have a, my, a bouquet of microphones in front of me, right? And, and hopefully then we use that as an opportunity to elevate public discourse and public education. And then the third piece, which I think is sorely underused, is the, is the power to convene, to bring people together around a, a common issue and break through silos and actually move an agenda forward. And I look at those as being co-equal, frankly, in terms of the impact that we can have on people and, and, and human lives. And so that's how we've been approaching this job. It's been from all of those angles. And, um, and so far, I think we're having some impact. I was um, home this week and, and convening refugees who are coming from Syria and talking about what we can do in terms of giving them a bully pulpit in terms of their experience so that hopefully we can impact public perception about who these families are. Um, it's been the work of, of, of meeting with folks who are working on criminal justice policy to, again, highlight the good work that is happening and, and hopefully have some impact then on my colleagues who are listening to this reactive kind of stuff and hopefully get them to a place where we are uh, more productive than that. So you're, uh, you're adjusting. Yes. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I must say that now that I know uh, what, what the roots of the name Kamala, the fact that you describe uh, the microphones in front of you as a bouquet makes more, more sense <laughs> to me. But Senator Kamala Harris, thank you so thank much you, uh, for right. being with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. 